Welcome to Fight Back Radio, a production of FightBackNews.org, taking you to the heart of the people's struggles. I'm your host, Richard Berg. And today's episode uh, is coming in the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision overturning uh, Roe versus Wade. And it strikes me that, uh, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about this before we get into the interview. Uh, you know, it's been 50 years uh, of attacks on women's rights. And uh, I think, you know, in the, the 1980s, uh, the anti-women forces uh, started to gain the upper hand. And uh, But women have continued to fight back and to fight to defend uh, their rights and expand them where possible. I want to point people to uh, fightbacknews.org, who produces this show. And uh, uh, it's a place to look for these fights. As, as women's rights battles get more to the forefront, go to fightbacknews.org, and you'll see about how people all over the country are fighting back against this and, uh, and fighting for women's rights. Um, also, I, I want to say today's uh, episode is uh, is appropriate. We have a, a, a fighter for working class women uh, as our guest today. This was recorded uh, before the Supreme Court decision, but you'll hear in the words of uh, Shireen Horizuk, uh, somebody who's uh, spent her whole life um, fighting for women's rights and has a perspective uh, based on, on her experiences and her fights. And uh, uh, this is, uh, is just so perfect for today, I think. Um, Shireen is uh, currently the president of uh, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, uh, AFSCME for short, uh, Local 3800. Uh, she represents the clerical workers at the University of Minnesota. And uh, it was under her leadership and along with her before her uh, um, Phyllis Walker, uh, that this uh, local union in the early 2000s uh, went out on strike uh, uh, a couple of times to fight for uh, not just women's rights, but worker rights and working women rights, um, and uh, has had this militant class struggle approach long before, uh, you know, the Red for Ed, uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, and all the teachers uh, unions across the country, and, you know, Amazon, Starbucks, and all the things that have happened since then, uh, where, where working people are fighting back. And so they were in, in the forefront of, of all of this. She walks the walk. She reminds me, because she's been a fighter for working class women, of the, you know, the debates that were going on 100 years ago where uh, people like Clara Zetkin and Alexandra Kolontai stepped into the forefront and, and, and took the reins and, and fought for women's rights. And I, I want you to, you know, our Fight Back Radio listeners to remember those names if you haven't heard them before. Uh, Alexandra Kolontai, who was a, a Russian, and uh, um, uh, Clara Zetkin, who was German, who, who fought and, and, and defined uh, what were you know, working class women uh, and what they needed, and, and those debates are still relevant today. Uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Christian Godsey from uh, who does a podcast that's called AK Forty Seven. Initially, it was a uh, Forty Seven uh, readings of uh, Alexandra Kolontai, but she digs into what uh, Kolontai thinks and uh, um, and is you know she's an intellectual, but she's an honest intellectual who who gives you that perspective. And so I want people to look back at them. Um, and think about uh, uh, Shireen Horizak and what you're going to hear today as well. Um, Shireen uh, 
also is uh, uh, an internationalist. Uh, she's uh, uh, been active in uh, coordinating uh, the North America section of the World Federation of Trade Unions, or the WFTU. And uh, she's been especially involved in uh, the Women's Commission of the WFTU in North America. And, uh, and she's also been you know, involved in the World Federation of Teachers in trying to organize the education sector uh, for the North American section of the World Federation of Trade Unions. So um, you know, she'll talk about that. You'll hear a little bit about that in the podcast as well. Um, more recently, she's been uh, the uh, co-chair of the Minnesota Workers United, and this is an organization that does many things in the state of Minnesota, but most recently, they were the main uh, support group where the Minneapolis teachers went out on strike, a successful strike, I might add. Um, so, uh, you know, there's no better example of, of class struggle unionism, in my view, than uh, than Shireen Horizuk. Um Before we, we start the interview, though, uh, I want to Thank all the people that have, uh, you know, sent us correspondence. So you can, and if you want to do that, you can reach us at richard.fightbackradio at gmail.com. That's richard.fightbackradio at gmail.com. And uh, I also want to thank all the people, all our new subscribers. We've been, we've been growing, and I'm happy to say thousands and thousands of people have downloaded these podcasts. And, uh, um, and so uh, I know we're getting out there to, to people. Um, I want to encourage you to, uh, after you hear this one, you'll, you'll agree with me, I believe, to, uh, to bring some new people in, uh, especially uh, uh, you know, women uh, in the workplace who are struggling to figure out the way forward. Shireen helps uh, point that uh, that light. And so I think, uh, if you can share this, uh, we want people to like it, give it five stars and all the things that, that you do, uh, with, uh, these podcasts. Um, so thank you again for uh, your support. And, uh, now, uh, uh, here's, uh, Shireen Horizuk. Uh, welcome Shireen. It's good to have you here. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Okay. Uh, so I, I want to dig right into it here. So uh, um, you're a, a member of the Women's Commission of the World Federation of Trade Unions and also part of the leadership body of the North American uh, section of the World Federation of Trade Unions. But I want to focus on the women's issue at least to start this uh, conversation off. Because here in the United States, uh, um, women have had barriers to becoming leaders in the, in the labor movement. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and uh, why is that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that one of the issues is that uh, historically and even currently, women's work is uh, not viewed as important as the work that men do. And so within the, the labor movement as a whole, um, over the course of history, the focus in organizing sectors of the labor movement, sectors of workers, has really focused on jobs that have been occupied mostly by men, so uh, more industrial unions, etc. And a lot of the work that women have done historically is, is viewed as um, sectors of the economy that couldn't be unionized um, because it's too difficult or things like that. So um, women who were domestic workers, there wasn't a, a lot of regard for that. Um, other sectors of, of the economy, even though, you know, service sectors, etc., uh, there wasn't just a high, there wasn't a high prioritization of unionizing um, women or thinking that they would be in the workforce for their entire career, though that is, or their entire lives, uh, though that is patently um, untrue, especially uh, especially when you think about um, a 
uh, you know, black and brown women who've always been in the workforce, um, as well as taking care of their families. And so, so the, the number of women within uh, unionized sectors of the workforce have been lower, and that's also led to um, you know, lower numbers of women in leadership in these roles. But I think a lot of it is really just straight up sexism, um, where, where uh, women's leadership isn't recognized and uh, isn't promoted, and women have to kind of fight and claw their way um, to positions of leadership and positions of respect. Yeah, I mean, on the last point, I, I think, I mean, today certainly that isn't true, right? I mean, uh, uh, as more and more uh, people get organized in healthcare and the public sector represents such a large part of organized labor now, um, I think women are approaching or maybe even surpassed 50% of organized labor right now. Um, but still, if you look at who's in the leadership, even if unions were... Uh, where women are overwhelmingly dominated, it's often men. That's certainly the case, yes. So what, what can we do to change that? Well, I think part of it, uh, I think there are two aspects to that. One is that, um, or maybe even more than two aspects to it. So I think that uh, women who are uh, involved in unions have to really um, see themselves as leaders and, and continue to just stay the course and and recognize that they bring an incredible amount of skills into into the positions and that they are worthy and deserving of being in leadership um, and and to look to other other women um, for support in in developing uh, those leadership roles I think as well though that men who are in the labor movement need to need to create space um, need to recognize that, that women are there as leaders and and to support that and to check themselves in terms of sexism and the way that they view things I know that you know uh, there's a lot of uh, I'll go to union conventions and there's a lot of discussion about how, you know, uh, women are uh, don't have time, right? They're taking care of their families, they're doing other things, and you know, there's an expectation that that there's a, you know that there could be entire decades uh, where women aren't wanting to get involved because they're taking care of their they're taking care of their families. But the reality is, women are going to work every day, and unions are about fighting for what our rights are in the workplace, and so. Um, so we should absolutely be involved in it, and it's a question of whether or not space is being created, whether or not they're being recognized for that, whether or not they're recognized for having kind of a long-term or, or permanent role within, within the workforce and within their unions. Now, besides your job in the WFTU, you're also the president of AFSCME, American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, um, Local 3800 uh, at the University of Minnesota. And I know um, the, the job, uh, you represent lots of women. There's, there's particular issues that come up on the job that, and in, in, in this may be related to the issue of leadership as well, but that uh, um, unions often ignore, you know, sexual harassment, the new Me Too movement. Um, what can uh, labor do or what is it not doing that it should be doing to protect its members that are women? Well, I think that um, labor needs to do more in really assessing what the conditions are in the workplace and what can be done to uh, challenge sexual harassment. Um, it's something that it's not uh, something that occurred in the past. It continues to happen. It happens in every workplace. 
Um, I think that that unions need to challenge it, um, challenge it from the very beginning, and I think they need to challenge it not only in the on the level of taking on employers and management that aren't dealing with sexism, but they also have to be willing to say, we're going to step in and make sure that um, that union members aren't harassing each other, right? And I think that there's this expectation at times that um, that unions don't want to deal with with sexual harassment, they don't want to deal with racism, they don't want to deal with any type with homophobia or transphobia or any type of dynamics that occur between workers, between co-workers, um, and, and by not doing that, they're not, by refusing to kind of address those issues, you're also losing opportunities to actually create solidarity and to educate people and, and make for both a better workplace but also a better labor movement. But uh, doesn't that threaten solidarity as well? I mean, when you're having these kind of divisions or if you make a big deal of it, you can maybe uh, split a workplace between uh, women and men? I think it's certainly possible that that can happen, um, but the reality is that the divisions already exist. So it's our job as a labor movement to um, paper over the divisions and say that it doesn't happen, or is our job to say, actually, we have common interests, which is that we're all fighting for dignity on the job, that we're all fighting for um, you know, a wage that we can survive on, that we can raise families on, that we can um, get an education on. You know, There's a lot that we have in common, and that we will do better if we're actually unified, and if we recognize that there may be differences that are there, and if we recognize that, that by pushing for um, uh, kind of work rules or policies that um, may seem to only benefit one group of workers, that they can actually be beneficial for everybody, right? So for instance, one of the things that we really fought for at the University of Minnesota that our union really pushed for was around parental leave and having paid parental leave. Now, almost every country in the world, there's paid parental leave or maternity leave, um, but not in the US, right? There's no law that says it should happen. Um, but, uh, you know, some workplaces will have paid parental leave and uh, almost, and that's almost exclusively workplaces that are unionized um, where, where that exists, where there's really any level of like um, significant uh, maternity leave. Um, we've actually, at the U of M, we won six weeks of, of paid, first it was paid maternity leave and then it was paid parental leave. and and uh and it was something that, that was beneficial. The university actually just wanted to provide it to women uh, to recover from the act of giving birth. That was literally the way that they phrased it when we were first negotiating it, right? Um, and, and what we organized around was to say, no, as a new parent, you have to have time to bond with your child. It shouldn't just be... Um, uh, a privilege for those that have an income that is great enough that they can find a way to take the time off. It should be a right that everybody has, regardless of what their income is. And so we pushed for six weeks of maternity leave, and then we pushed for six weeks of, well, we pushed for parental leave from the get-go. Um, we won it for as maternity leave first, but then won it as parental leave, because all parents, regardless of gender, regardless of whether or not you've given birth, have the should have the right um, to take time off 
uh, after having a child, after adopting a child. So that's something that actually, it could be viewed as divisive, right? Well, why should women get this extra leave? Or they're so special or whatever. But instead it becomes an issue that this is something that's good for everybody that all parents have. And we also did a lot of education so that um, those who hadn't or who, you know, weren't parents or weren't planning to be parents or those who had been parents a lot, you know, were, um, you know, now grandparents and weren't worried about um, taking time off for the birth of a child, um, that they saw it as something that they really wanted to fight for others to have because, because the, the, fact is the labor movement should be about lifting everybody up and not just saying we're fighting for the rights of a small number of people. Instead, we should be saying um, we want to fight for this for this group of workers and we want to fight for that for that group of workers and that's beneficial to everybody. The greater level of, of benefits that we are able to gain for everybody actually benefits us all. Let me also, I want to take this a little bit of a different direction. Uh, you know, I want to talk about workplace uh, culture a little bit. Um, I mentioned the Me Too movement earlier and uh, the sexual harassment on the job. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I, never, I knew it existed. I think everybody does. But the scope of it, mm-hmm. you know, as, as women started to come forward and say Me Too, um, and especially in the aftermath of uh, Donald Trump's really thumbing his nose and uh, promoting a rape culture within our society. Um, but unions have often been silent on this, and uh, it's starting to change, I think. But what kinds of things, as a union leader, you know, can, we, can you do or can we do as union members to try to create a culture that uh, empowers women and makes them feel uh, fully part of their, their union, whether they want to be leaders or just rank-and-file members? So... I'll just say um, our union is 85% women. The vast majority of, of uh, leadership uh, of our local are, are women. And so we have a slightly different dynamic, I think, um, in terms of creating spaces for women's leadership and, and participation um, than, than, what other, uh, what, than what might exist in other workplaces or other unions. But I think there are a lot of things that unions can do to stand up for their members, um, to stand up against harassment um, in the workplace, to demand, fundamentally, it is the, the boss's responsibility to create an environment where, um, where you can go to work every day and work with dignity on the job and not face harassment in any way, shape, or form. That is the fundamental responsibility of the employer. Um, as a union, it is our responsibility to make sure that the employer is doing their job, right? It is not, it's our responsibility to take on an employer and say, you've not put in place policies that are addressing this. You've not put in place educational mechanisms to address this. You've not put in place, um, or you have these policies, but they're really not being enforced. Um, if harassment is happening in the workplace, that's their responsibility, and we need to hold them accountable for it and say, no, this is this is absolutely unacceptable. Um, so, so part of it is really just challenging that, and again, holding them accountable for it. I think um, we also have to then work within our unions to uh, create space um, for for conversations and and to to 
talk amongst ourselves as union members and, and to say what is the type of union movement that we're wanting to build, right? And so sometimes people make mistakes. People are raised in this capitalist system, um, in this in this patriarchal system that says women should be valued as less than men, right? And so women are raised that way, men are raised that way. And so it's not surprising that, that people bring in all of this baggage, all of this garbage into the workplace, right? Um, so so there are instances where people are going to make mistakes, where they're going to say the wrong thing, they're going to do the wrong thing. Um, there are, you know, certainly folks that are just terrible people, I would say as well, and need to be challenged. But I think there are ways that we can also have those conversations and say, no, your behavior isn't acceptable because it, it really is holding back. It's holding back all of us. It's holding back the labor movement. You know, if there's someone, if it's someone who's a good union member, then we can have a conversation and say, this isn't the type of behavior that you should have, and you really need to educate, do some education about why why you're viewing this um, or behaving in this way. And so I think there are things that we can do to challenge that. Um, I think that, you know. Uh, as someone who's been a union steward, I've had to deal with cases where you know men are looking at porn at work, right? Um, I don't so know. how do you deal with that? Um, so uh, honestly, I don't care what people do at home, but there there are certain things that that I think are inappropriate in the workplace, and that, that there's harassment, and the, that that it becomes harassment, right? Like women shouldn't have to walk past a coworker looking at shit on his computer screen, right? Um, and and so we've had instances where where people are getting disciplined for it, and and in my opinion, um, again, the employer is responsible for ensuring a safe work environment, right? And and if they're creating an environment where where women are feeling harassed, where women are feeling disrespected, where women are are not able to go to work and feel safe and comfortable, that's on the employer. And so so um, you know. I, in one instance where someone had been looking at pornography for, and his coworkers had talked to him about it and said, you know, this is inappropriate to be doing in the workplace. Well, that's an important first step. Right. Is right. To, to, before you go to the boss or do something like that, right. to, to, as union sisters, brothers, siblings, to say, look, uh, this isn't, you know, yeah. This isn't building solidarity. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in this instance, it was someone who didn't care, right? They were, they didn't listen to it, and they actually complained about their coworkers who were complaining about him watching porn at work. Um, he ended up uh, fundamentally or ultimately losing his job because he wouldn't change his behavior. And I have no problem with that, to be completely honest. Um, the efforts were made, um, attempts were made, um, we tried to talk to him, and, and he had none of it. He didn't care. And so, so I think as long as, you know, as long as the rules are being followed and, and there are opportunities, you know, the contract is being followed, um, I don't think it is, upon, it is on the union to say, we're going to defend someone who's harassing people or defend someone who is a racist Right, I, I think that's not our job to do, and I think I think we have to be very clear in saying, um, 
that that we because our job so we make choices as union members and as union leaders every day in terms of where we're putting our time and energy and where we make decisions every day about what type of labor movement we want to build and so am i about building a labor movement that that is viewed as defending harassers as viewed as defending um you know uh people who are who are um you know saying racist shit in the workplace or you know uh doing stuff to harass women in the workplace that's not the labor movement i want to build i want to build a labor movement that's actually about lifting up everybody and lifting up our coworkers and so we make a choice are we defending the harasser or are we creating a workplace where the harasser's coworkers who are women have a safe place to work well, let's go there for a minute so you you've um, uh you know you're, you're a member of the world federation of trade unions uh, which defines itself as uh, class-oriented uh, trade unionist. And I've heard you in the past say, define yourself as a class-struggle unionist. What does it mean to be a, a class-struggle unionist or support class-struggle unionism in your view? Well, I think there are a number of aspects to it. Um, you know, first, it means that, you know, there are... In the U.S., people think that there aren't classes, right? There's been this grand illusion that everybody can get ahead, that we're all in this together. We're both all in this together and pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps, which are two contradictory themes, but that's kind of how, how society is viewed, when in reality, there are classes that exist. And so there's the working class where people are, um, have to sell their labor every day. Right? We don't have a choice. If, we don't, if we're not selling our labor, if we're not working and getting paid to work, we're not going to survive. We don't have a choice. There's no other way that we, you know, we're, we're going to be able to feed our families, that we're going to be able to have housing, etc. Um, then there are those, uh, you know, the, the bourgeoisie or the ruling class or the 1% or however you want to refer to them. They're the folks that don't have to work to survive, that um, have either inherited their wealth or they, they own the companies, they own the businesses where other people work for them. So what they do is they pay other people to work and they create greater and greater wealth, right? So those classes exist. Um, and as a labor movement, we have to recognize that those classes exist and, and that it's really a fight. It's, we have polar opposite interests. Either I'm going to make more money as a worker for the work that I do every day, or the boss is going to make more money um, because I'm making less, right? And so we have inherently different interests for how we are going to view the world and how we're going to work. And so as unions, I think building a perspective of class struggle says that, that we have to recognize that this relationship exists with the boss where we're either going to win more or they're going to win more, that it's a battle, it's a fight. It's not about finding common interests with the boss. Um, it is about finding common interests with other workers. So my interests lie with workers in other countries more than they lie with the, the bosses in my own country, right? Um, it's a, a perspective of proletarian internationalism, right? So, the, so in the labor movement, you hear a lot of times in the U.S. by American, right? Um, as opposed to uh, saying, well, what we should be doing is supporting workers around the world in the fights that they have because we are in the same fight, whether it's an Amazon worker in the U.S., an Amazon worker in France, an Amazon worker in, you know, the Philippines. They have more in common 
with each other than they do with Amazon. Well, let's talk about the international perspective for a minute. So um, you just went to the Congress of uh, the World Federation of Trade Unions, which I, I think happens every five years or so. This time it was in Rome. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about uh, who was at that Congress, uh, from what countries, what kind of people, and uh, what was some of the, the discussions that struck you um, as uh, somebody from uh, the Twin Cities here in the USA? So the World Federation of Trade Unions is, uh, there are two international federations that bring together the labor movement um, uh, and unions from a lot of different countries. There's the ITUC and the World Federation of Trade Unions, the WFTU. Um, the World Federation of Trade Unions is the oldest federation um, that exists. It represents over 110 million workers in, I think, 133 or 134 countries. It formed in 1945 after, in the aftermath of, of World War II to bring together um, you know, the, the union movement around the world at that time. Um, and the, as you said, they, the WFTU as Congresses every five years that bring together leaders of all of these unions from around the world. Uh, I've had the privilege of attending three Congresses so far um, in Athens, in Durban, well, Athens, Greece, in Durban, South Africa, and uh, this latest one in Rome, Italy. The WFTU, the vast majority of their unions are from the global south. Um, they're from, quite honestly, from countries where I think a lot of people in the U.S. don't think that there's a strong labor movement, but there is actually a, a strong labor movement um, and a lot of unions who are involved. And the WFTU is... So uh, countries that are more victims of uh, imperialism, to say, use a, use a word, um, as opposed to where we're from, a country that is a, an imperialist country. Right, exactly. So, you know, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of unions from, from Latin America and the Caribbean, from Africa, from the Middle East, from, from uh, South Asia, um, who are involved. There are fewer, fewer unions from, um, I'd say, kind of Western uh, so-called countries, so not as many from Europe. Um, there are only two local unions, not federations at all, but local unions from the U.S. who are members of the WFTU. Um, and so these are, the WFTU has a very clear perspective of building class struggle unionism. They talk about having, that they're class-oriented unions. And what that means, again, is that they view, um, they, they have an understanding that capitalism is a problem, that capitalism is a system that is holding working people back, and that we have to not only as, as union members fight against, to fight for improvements in one workplace um, and fight for you know, contracts or, or better wages or, or benefits or working conditions in one workplace, but we actually have to fight against the system that, that is oppressing all working people and that has a vision that says there's actually another alternative that's out there, right? That, that socialism is something that exists that is, that is good for working people, right? That puts the hands, the reins of, of how a country is run, how a system is run in the hands of working people who are those who are actually the ones who make, who, who make, who make things, who build things, who, who, who create all profits. And so the WFTU has this perspective that says we want to build class struggle, that it's a fight, 
that um, that you know the ruling class is going to hold uh, to fight for everything to retain their wealth, and and that we have to fight to to make gains as working people um, at the WFTU. Uh, you know, very strongly calls for unions to be democratic, that working people, that we should be the ones who determine how our unions are run, who determine what our unions are doing, and who lead our movements, right? We don't need, you know, um, you know, nonprofits or others telling us what to do. We're the ones who really want to, want to, um, to uh, fight for our own destinies, right? Um, it's also a, a federation that very clearly has a perspective of um, uh, against imperialist aggression uh, that says um, most wars are bad for working people. That that it is uh, you know that many of the wars that are fought around the world are fought uh, to make greater profits for the oil companies or for dole you know dole fruit or or any other um, number of U.S. or um, you know multinational corporations that that working people tend to be the ones who pay the price um, for the wars that happen, and so there's a very strong anti-war, anti-imperialist stance, um, and that has a perspective of international solidarity. Again, that says we want to support the struggles of people. In, in all countries of working people that are standing up and fighting back. So that's the general kind of uh, sentiment of the WFTU. And, and a lot of what the discussion was about at the Congress as people talked about what was the reality in their countries? How are they going to build these fights? Um, how do they take on? And where, where we have similarities um, because the, the same policies that they're putting forward in one country regarding you know, corporate reform of education, um, you know, the creation of charter schools, etc. Um, that's something that's happening not just in the U.S., it's happening in Brazil, it's happening in Mexico, it's happening in India, it's very similar everywhere. And so the fights can be very similar as well. And so there were talk about where are the commonalities and where can we learn from each other and where, where might there be differences or uh, based on the particular conditions, but we want to learn from that and support each other. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a, a perspective of trade unionism that's relatively rare in the United States. Uh, but th there is class struggle in the United States, and there's class struggle everywhere. And uh, there's class struggle unionism in the United States as well. Absolutely. Um, what would be your, could you point to an example here uh, of, uh, you know, workers, uh, you know, practicing class struggle unionism? Um, absolutely. I think one of the one of the places where that is seen the most and has been the most inspiring in, um, you know, in recent decades is the Chicago Teachers Union. Ah, my union. Um, yes, your union. <laughs> and, and I know that that wasn't a leading question, but it really is. It, it's um, I think inspired not just uh, not just other teachers to stand up, but it's inspired unions around the country to really think about what is the type of labor movement that we want to build, right? And so, you know, the Chicago Teachers Union, um, at a time when the, the attacks on public education were just incredible and fierce and, um, you know, and it seemed like teachers were the problem, or teachers unions were the problem. 
um, and that we shouldn't stand up and fight back, the Chicago Teachers Union led the way and said, actually, we need to fight back against these people that want to destroy public education. And, and it's not just about um, standing up for teachers, it's also standing up for the students that are that are in the schools. And so coining the phrase, you know, the teachers uh, working conditions are student learning conditions, um, I think is a, a really important part of it. But it but um, by saying as a union, we're standing up for the betterment of public schools and a public education system, which will help our community members and and um, and that we're going to take on uh, the folks that want to destroy public education and that um, as a result of destroying public education you know that black and brown students uh, that black and brown families have the the least amount of access to alternatives and so having an analysis that says we want to fight back against that and the way that we fight back against that is by being strong and militant uh, by going on strike, um, not just writing letters or lobbying in the legislature and saying we need more funding, but instead saying, no, we're going to defend public education and we're going to stand up for teachers and say teachers actually deserve to make a living wage. They need, they deserve um, dignity in the workplace. They deserve um, smaller class sizes. All of those things are, are things that, that really the Chicago teachers led the way in doing, and it, they led the way in doing it by going on strike and saying, um, if, if we're not going to have dignified working conditions and if we're not going to get paid uh, living wages and for doing our job, then you're not going to have us doing our job. We're going to walk off the job. And when they did, and they said we're fighting not only for ourselves, we're fighting for our students as well. Uh, I had the privilege of being in Chicago and, um, during the strike in 2012 and some of the other strikes, and you could see the outpouring of support from families, from students um, who said yes, the Chicago teachers fight is my fight. They're fighting for themselves, but they're fighting for me. And that's really, I think, gone. Um, you see that not only with the Chicago teachers, but the Minneapolis teachers were just on strike here in a very similar, and we saw a very similar uh, situation where they were inspiring um, not just other folks in the labor movement who saw what was possible, but they were inspiring community members to stand up and fight. Um, and so I think that that's, that's a bit of uh, what building class struggle. Yeah, being willing about. to fight, being yes. willing to really take things on, and not just yeah, I, I see that, and uh, um, you know, we could see it in the in the in Chicago and in, in uh, the recent Minneapolis strike. Um, as somebody who looks at uh, the labor movement from a class point of view and from a point of view that's wanting to build class struggle, how do you assess uh, our movement nationally right now? Or are we on uh, are we on the uptick or uh, are we on the downtick or you know it's been uh, um, we had a, a one of our guests recently was uh, Larry Spivak from the Illinois Labor History Society he talked about these huge strikes in the 19th and early 20th century and um, you know so how do we fit in how how are we doing or what's the trend right now in labor right. Well, I won't lie. Also, I I think that the the state of labor over the past um, you know few decades has been really grim. And you know there were some who were talking about you know is is the labor movement um, dying? Right. Fewer and fewer people are in unions. Um, you know the attacks have been have been vicious. Um, but I'm actually incredibly hopeful 
about where things are at. And I, th I think things are on an upward trajectory. Um, you know, and I, I think there are a number of, of reasons for that. Again, I think, you know, the Chicago teachers and the, the uh, strike of 2012, I think, started getting people thinking about what do we need to do as a labor movement? And, and the fact that, that um, you know, it's clearly been shown that if you just ask the bosses nicely for a raise, you're not going to get it, right? But if you say, we're not going to work for you unless you give us a raise, um, you're much more likely to get it. So workers standing up um, is, has shown over and over again throughout history that that's what's effective. And so we've seen over the past couple of years, um, I think particularly coming out of, not coming out of the pandemic, but in the midst of the pandemic, it just laid bare what's wrong with this system, um, where working people were told, we don't care if you're gonna die, you have to go to work anyway. And we're not gonna provide safety, we're not gonna provide anything that you need uh, to be safe on the job, uh, because we don't have it. And so, uh, but you still have to show up and you have to risk your life uh, while I sit at home um, in, you know, in a work from home environment as the boss telling you what to do and how to risk your life. Or, you know, uh, healthcare workers who on the one hand were, um, were told that they were heroes because they were taking care of people within, with COVID, again, risking their lives to do so. At the same time, the hospital corporations were threatening to lay people off because the profits in the healthcare industry are in elective surgeries and in elective, um, uh, you know, health, um, you know, provision of health um, and medicine that people weren't going for because it wasn't safe to go in, right? Like that just exposes what's wrong with the system. You know, um, folks who were working in the meatpacking industry, um, you know, the, the level of workplace deaths from COVID are just tremendous uh, within the Latino community in particular. And so, so people saw what, what was wrong with the system and I think we're just incredibly pissed off about it and are, are fighting back. And that's, that I think is a really positive thing. I will also say that I think part of the reason that we're seeing an upsurge within the labor movement with um, you know, a tremendous amount of strikes that were happening last fall, they were calling it Striketober, right? Um, with you know, somewhere around 100,000 workers who were out on strike in the month of October which is a lot more than it been for years and years, um, not nearly what it was during the big strike waves of the 30s and 40s or of the 60s and early 70s, but it was significant compared to, to recent years. I think that part of why there was, why we're seeing this upsurge though, um, has not only to do with the pandemic and has not only to do with um, having seen you know, uh, the Chicago teachers and others who've been on strike having success. But I actually think a lot of it goes to the uprising that has taken place in after George Floyd was murdered. And I think that there are any instances throughout history where what we'll see is, um, you know, the civil rights movement um, take to the streets. And really there's this tremendous upsurge and fight back and that movement of, of you know, black and brown folks um, fighting for their rights um, inspires everyone to do so, right? Yeah, I and think I you think see that a little bit with organizing the unorganized, yeah. too. I mean, uh, the Amazon 
warehouse workers in uh, in New York and Staten Island. Um, I mean, do you see that? I mean, right now we're down to six percent in the private sector or something like that of uh, union members or workers that are in unions. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see? Uh, is there is there a chance for us to to turn that around to to build on what's? I mean, the Amazon is one issue, but it seemed to to tap into some of what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, I. The opportunity when I was in Rome for the WFTU Congress to uh, have conversations with um, a young Amazon or a young uh, Starbucks worker from the U.S. who was attending as well, and Angel was is um, was working for Starbucks in um, Buffalo, New York. That was the first one. That was the first <laughs> one, and Angel was fired for organizing. And, um, you know, she talked a lot about her experiences on the job and also experiences talking to Starbucks workers across the country. And, um, and they're fired up and they're fighting back and they're talking to each other. And I think that's happening in a lot of different workplaces. And so, so you know, Buffalo was the first one to organize, uh, the Buffalo Starbucks was the first one to organize a, a union. And now it's at like 69 or 79 stores and every day there are more coming online um, because people, again, people saw with the pandemic that, um, that the, the bosses don't care. And, and we need to organize ourselves and stand up for something better. And, and people saw the change that can happen if we come together collectively. And so they're talking to each other. So we're seeing organizing at Starbucks, we're seeing organizing at Half Price Books, a national um, discount bookstore chain that has you know, a number of stores here that have organized. We see, we're seeing a lot of organizing in service sector positions, right? Where it's, where it's again, predominantly young workers, predominantly, um, uh, you know, a lot of women, a lot of, uh, you know, African-American, Latino workers um, who are standing up and organizing themselves. Um, and, and I find that incredibly inspiring because they're also, uh, again, they're organizing themselves as workers. Um, you know, they certainly have some support of the, the bigger unions in doing that, but, but it's workers coming together saying, we need to do this and we're gonna form a union. Um, and so, so unions are looking pretty good to people who've, who've uh, tried to do this on their own and, you know, uh, get raises and things like that. And it's a lot easier if you're actually organizing collectively. So you talked a little bit about the pandemic uh, sparking a little bit of a class consciousness. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Why was, I mean, how, how did that happen? How did you see that happening? Well, I, you know, I saw it from the very beginning, the first days of the pandemic where uh, the debate was really, what, what are people going to do? So, so I work at the university and, um, and we pushed the university to send people home to work from home if you could to make sure that we were, you know, we, we saw what was happening around the world and knew that something terrible was coming. Um, and, and we were fortunate that we were able to win the ability to work from home for the vast majority of workers. But we also saw that the university, when they were shutting down or sending people home, one of the things that they wanted to do was to tell all student workers um, who work as part of their financial aid, et cetera, and are in pretty unstable jobs, um, 
they wanted to just uh, fire all of the student workers for the rest of the year, not give them anything, because if they can't be on site working, then they, they didn't want to pay them. Even though they, the university had received all of the funding for the year, were a public institution, the budget was there, they'd already budgeted to pay all of these students, but they wanted to send them home without any wages. And we said, absolutely not, right? We have to protect all workers in the workforce. So the student workers aren't unionized, they're not part of our union, but we stood up and fought for them as well because it was the right thing to do and we got everyone sent home um, with pay. But um, that was just a little sign of what was going on. Um, we could see the nurses in the hospitals, um, the way that they were being treated, the way that, you know, again, any corporation who could would rather send people home without having to pay them at all, right, without any protections or just lay them off. We'll furlough, furlough them and then you're on your own to figure out what to do, how you're going to survive. Um, they didn't care until they needed you back at work, right? And then they wanted everyone back at work. And so we see the fact that, you know, the, the CDC has changed the requirements and uh, for, um, you know, once you've had COVID, it's fine if you go back to work after five days because your boss needs you back to work after five days. The science isn't there. It's that it's the, the boss needs it. And I think, you know, it's not just union members who see this and understand it. It's working people overall. We're not stupid. We see what the reality is. And we see um, that, that the bosses, by and large, don't care. And they'll let us die if we can't make a profit for them. And so someone has to stand up and fight back. And that's what working people are doing. And they're coming together and forming unions because throughout history, throughout capitalism, that's how working people have, um, have gotten ahead is by working people forming unions and fighting back. So uh, let me circle back to how we started this conversation. We were talking about uh, um, women being uh, you know, active in union and barriers and uh, the World Federation of Trade Unions. and. Um, I want to ask you, uh, you know, on a personal level, how did, you know, you're a labor leader right now. You're the president of uh, one of the largest, uh, you know, one of the larger unions in uh, Minnesota and, uh, and an, an international leader within the World Federation of Trade Unions. And so, I mean, you don't just wake up and say, okay, I'm going to do all this stuff. How did, what was your road a little bit? How did you get to where you are and uh, what made you want to be a, a, a labor leader? I mean, it's, uh, um, yeah. people think of, uh, you know, Jimmy Hoffa or some, uh, you know, fat white guy smoking a cigar or something mm -hmm. like that, and, and you're, you're none of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, <I'm not. laughs> so. so I, I grew up in a working class family. Um, my dad was a truck driver. Um, he was a member of Teamsters. My grandfather was a Teamster. My great-grandfather was a Teamster, and uh, my uh, Great-grandfather and grandfather were actually part of the Teamsters, uh, the trucker strike in 1934 here in Minneapolis that made uh, trucking a unionized industry. It's um, a historic strike. That's was, uh, for our listeners of Fight Back Radio. The 1934 Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota uh, Teamsters strike is something you should check out. It's a uh, um, definitely an important event in, in our history as a working class. Yeah, and uh, you know, I learned from my dad, who was on strike multiple times when I was when I was growing up, that um, you never cross a picket line, right? You always like workers need to stand together um, and and fight. Um, I also learned from my dad that, uh, you know, being a truck driver is hard, being working class is hard. And I thought I was pretty smart. 
um, and I was going to go to college. I wasn't. I wasn't going to be a worker. Um, I was going to be something else. Um, and and so I uh, and I also thought like uh, like there's this perspective as well. I think that that people think that they should be ashamed of being working class, right? People don't talk about the working class in the U.S. They talk about the middle class, right? Um, and and if they talk about the working class, they're not good enough, right? There's a lot of propaganda around there. And I think a lot of working folks uh, succumb to that. Um, and so, and I certainly did. And uh, so I, I went to college, um, went to college on a scholarship from the Teamsters, actually. I got some money from the Teamsters to go to college and I was gonna do better. I was gonna be better than that because I was smarter than that. I was gonna have a different type of job. I remember my mom when I was in high school telling me, uh, she made me take typing. Um, and I didn't want to take typing because I wasn't going to be a secretary. And now I'm the president of the clerical workers union, right? I'm like, it was good to be, it was good to take typing. It's good to have a, it's good to have a skill set. Um, and I, I recognize that and I honor that every day. But um, I went to college and I got involved in student activism actually, uh, as a college student. And it was, it was the time when people were fighting against apartheid in South Africa and fighting for universities to divest their investments from, um, from the apartheid government um, of South Africa. And then I got involved in the Central America Solidarity Movement and spent a lot of time really fighting against US intervention in, in El Salvador and supporting the grassroots movements there, actually supporting the, the FMLN, which was the, the armed uh, guerrilla movement there, and um, as well as the labor movement and, and social movement. And I had the opportunity to travel to El Salvador and meet with people, and I saw the results of, of US imperialism. I saw bombs that had been dropped in communities that, that literally had um, like some undetonated bombs that we saw that had made in the USA on them, right? Like stamped on them. It wasn't just that you could conceptually know that this was happening, but you saw it. You saw the devastation and why were we there? It made no sense, um, except the US wanted to control the region, right? And why did the US want to control the region? Because they wanted to control, uh, control it for corporate interests. Um, when I was there, I actually uh, saw the, the labor movement um, fight in a way that was incredible. And it was very, very inspiring to me. And so um, I was able to talk to people both as, as a student activist and as a Central America Solidarity activist. I met, with, I, I met with people who called themselves revolutionaries. I met with people who called themselves socialists, who said that the, another world is possible and actually being working class is something you should be proud of because we're who made the world. We're who made all these things, these, these incredible things, the sound system that we're talking in right now, like all of these things um, were, were made by working people. They were our hands that put them together. And if, we can make, and if we can make the things that run the world, why can't we run the world? And that was really profound to me. Um, and and so, so I, I became a socialist because of that, because I realized there is another world that's possible. It's not just about toiling every day. It's not just about some people will have a lot and others will have nothing. We can actually create a system. There is enough wealth in the world that everybody should be able to live a life with dignity. And so, um, so I joined Freedom Road Socialist Organization and, and uh, 
you know, have been an activist uh, within that uh, for the past 30 years. Um, I, uh, after my father died in 2001, I, I lived in New York for a time uh, working in Central America Solidarity Movement with CISPIS, the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, um, which was a privilege every day, as I said. And, uh, but when my father died in 2001, I wanted to move home. And so I moved back to Minnesota and I wanted to be involved in a fight. Um, I wanted to be involved in really working to, um, working to change the system, working to change society. Um, and I, and I needed a job because uh, I'm working class and I needed to, needed to uh, you know, I didn't inherit wealth. I, I needed to find a way to, to um, make a living. And, and so I got a job at the university. Um, and I got a job at the university because I was looking for a job that was unionized because I wanted a pension. I wanted to be able to retire with dignity. Um, and I wanted a, a, a job where I, again, it was unionized and I, I was really wanting to be a union activist as well. And, and so I got a job at the U, I signed my union card, um, the first opportunity that I had, and I've been active within my union ever since. Well, I'll say uh, your, your father taught you some good lessons, and uh, I'll also say that the Teamsters, uh, I don't think uh, they've given money to a scholarship better than that one, because um, that's come back to pay off uh, dividends for our class in big ways. So um, I, I thank your father and uh, the Teamsters for those things. Me too. Um, um, that, that's the end of our interview today. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I really enjoyed this, Shireen. And uh, thank you so much for, uh, for being a guest on Fight Back Radio. This has been great fun. Thank you. That was Shireen Horizuk. Her in-depth knowledge is something I think we all can learn from. I know a lot of people on the left uh, talk about uh, class consciousness or that we read about it in books, but I think what you just heard is the embodiment of class consciousness. Shireen Horizuk really walks the walk and uh, um, it's hopefully you got something out of that I know I did um, so going forward for those of you that are interested uh, news and views from the people's struggle is including international news news on the women's movement or the trade union movement I want to point you back to fightbacknews.org it's the place to go and uh, I check it every day I think uh, I think you should too um, those particularly interested in the World Federation of Trade Unions, I also want to point you to a, a publication called Labor Today. There's also a Labor Today International. They, they report regularly on the World Federation of Trade Unions and, and their affiliates and some of the things that are going on in unions, or especially the class struggle unions around the country and around the world. Um, we'll put some of the stuff in the show notes also about how to get a hold of us uh, you know, through Twitter, Instagram, all those kind of things. Um, I hope you're enjoying these uh, these broadcasts of Fight Back Radio. Um, again, I want to encourage you to to uh, tell a friend about it. Uh, give us five stars, subscribe, uh, like, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, if you want to reach me at Fight Back Radio, it's uh, richard.fightbackradio at gmail.com. And then uh, I want to finally thank uh, our production team of Vince Olson and Shane Tremley. Um, this particular uh, interview took a lot of editing because we went out of studio and uh, there was traffic noise and all kinds of other things and echoes and uh, Vince and uh, Shane just do a fabulous job and I want to thank them so much without them uh, these uh, these uh, broadcasts don't happen and so thank you so much guys 
Um, so thank you all then uh, for, for tuning in. Uh, for the entire uh, Fight Back radio team, uh, I'm Richard Berg saying until next time, all power to the people.